down until he could no longer keep his feet. That's the margarita singing. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Superhero Speak Live-ish at New York Comic-Con. I'm your host, Dave. And John. And and you can introduce yourself. Uh, hi. Uh, he Joey. snuck in. I'm Joey from So Was Your Podcast. I <laughs> snuck in. We had the place sprayed, but he showed up anyway. Yeah, it just happened. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Actually, John, what I wanted to talk about yep. is... You haven't been here since 2019. Whoa, bro. So what do you think so far with the convention this year? The attendance is actually more than it was in 2019 Mm. right now. Yeah, sounds painful. And it's nice with the new building, but they could have utilized a lot of the extra space they have with the new building to put like massage chairs or just any place. Or massage parlors. Or just any place somebody could relax. Like even carpeting would have been nice yeah. in, in, in just like in the middle where not a lot of people walk. But otherwise, the only other thing is, the only other comment I have is, why did they put the new press lounge at literally the furthest point from everything else in the convention? Because you're lucky you got the badge at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like they, they like to make us think. I, I yeah. think that's what it is. I honestly think. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, no, it's good. Like it feels. You were here the last two years, on, and you said you were saying that it was weird, it especially was. in twenty twenty one. But this feels like the same con I left, except as the years go, they get more and more people. Yes. So, yeah, it's been great. And Joey, you just got here. I literally got here less than an hour ago. So <laughs> I, I worked at three thirty this morning until eleven thirty. Went home, I got packed up, I got on the train, and I got here, and I just happened, I was so hungry, I was going to murder somebody, <laughs> so I went into this deli, and then these guys just happened to walk right in, thank God, I was really worried about getting mugged or murdered while I was here. And us walking in didn't make that worse. No, <laughs> I was about actually. to say, you're in a hotel with us, you're still not safe. I felt very safe. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been happy so far, It's it does feel like pre-print pandemic level con, We've been very busy. Both Thursday and Friday was booked. It's good and bad because when you don't have stuff to do, you're walking around. When I was here in 21 with my brother-in-law, we spent a lot of time walking the floor going, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? See, I like walking around, though, because I get to talk to people. But there also wasn't as much here. It was half attendance. I wouldn't have wanted that every year to be like that, but that was a cool like one-time thing where there was like 25% of the regular attendance and you could walk around. Yeah. But we got a lot of cool interviews so far, and uh, yeah, it's been great. Actually, before we get to any of the interviews, we should talk a little news, because it is what we do on this show. Mahler's news? Are oh, you a- talking about Momoa? Yeah, Jason Momoa. He's in talks to play uh, Lobo. Yeah. What do we think, Joey? Didn't, wasn't that a thing like a year or two ago? Yeah, they talk- it was floated, but like nothing came of it. Now they're saying he's officially in talks with Gunn. It was floated out probably on purpose and the yeah, trial was, balloon he'd make a great lobo yeah i like jason momoa quite a bit actually i like him a lot as aquaman yeah I he think is a good aquaman he's great in uh fast x which you guys probably haven't watched but he was really fun in that as long as he's not just going to play himself because i feel like aquaman is just him dressed as aquaman he's playing himself dressed as aquaman yeah. more or less so he's gonna have to put yeah. some effort into it to differentiate between aquaman and lobo actually lobo is Jason Momoa dressed up as a Zarnian. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I'm down. I don't really care. Yeah. It's not like I have a choice. I'm going to see it anyway. So. It feels that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Actually, he his personality is more geared towards Lobo than it is Aquaman. If you think about it, because yeah, Lobo I, is just a big dude, bro. 
really. Yeah, like he's a biker. Yeah, it works. Yeah. Like, that's Jason Momoa. I don't know. Never understood the casting. I don't have a, once he played the role, I didn't have a problem with it. But like when I first saw it, I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, he was originally up for Drax in uh, Guardians, which doesn't seem like it would. I can't imagine anyone else in the role at this point besides Batista. So it's really right. weird to even think about that. Yeah. Batista did such a great job. So. Yeah. And then the only other news, and this is goes along with something we've been talking about in a while. It just came out that the predictions for the box office for Marvels, the Marvels is even lower than they thought. There's going to be a huge drop off. All the pre-sales are not what they thought it was going to be. Is Marvel done? Oh, <laughs> is yeah, the MCU when, reaching an end? What do we think? When they say pre-sales, though, that movie doesn't come out for another half a month at least, right? Yeah, but in the past, when they pre-sailed sell tickets they sold like hotcakes that's what yeah, they're saying i know i just i'm still going to see it i'm hoping it'll be as good as i think it's gonna be but i think the problem being that like we were talking about over dinner it's just that it seems like it seems like feige either took on too much and couldn't control it all properly yeah. or a conglomeration of things happened the pandemic feige <laughs> taking on too much and then maybe a little studio interference too yeah, it could be. I don't know. What do you think? You still excited for Marvel, Joe? I, I don't care about box office at all. I, I think it's like a newer type thing, maybe in the last five, ten years, when it became like DC versus Marvel. to mm, be yeah. a team battle box office where people care so much about box office, where there's movies I love that have made $1.75 at the box office, and there's movies I love that have made over a billion dollars at the box office. I don't really care. It doesn't affect me in any way, shape, or form because I don't get any of that money. So who cares? What does it matter to me? <laughs> I will say that I think MCU is in a weird place because you think back to when it started, if Iron Man sucked right. or wasn't well, 100% well-received, everybody loves the first Iron Man. That's the building block for everything else. Since Endgame, it's been all over the place, like the shaky Jenga tower. Yep. So there's stuff that people love, like Guardians, Spider-Man No Way Home. I think Shang-Chi was really well-received. Yeah, uh, a couple other things probably off the top. WandaVision, Loki. But then there's other things like Miss Marvel, for example. This whole movie is bringing Miss Marvel forward in all the marketing. She's right next to Carol and all yeah. the marketing. But her show wasn't that popular. <laughs> I think maybe they thought it would be more popular. So I still think it was one of the better ones. I, I had some issues with it. I, I loved it when it was just her. But then they shoved this whole storyline in of save the world and go to Pakistan and there's a portal or some shit. And that was not well done. Right. And the, the whole show just ran into a brick wall to me. The, if that show had been her friends at school, her family and her mosque and community, you throw a real low level villain in there. That's threatening like those couple of streets where she lives. Yeah. You got something special because everything was great except for that weird plot where all of a sudden she's thrust into an Avengers level threat. And we only have six episodes for all of this. It was right. Just like yeah. what is happening? So I think you don't have the market quality anymore. You can't just say it's Marvel. I know it's going to be good. It's up and down. Everybody likes different projects they don't like. I like She-Hulk a lot. Some people didn't like it. Yeah. It is what it is. It's not here to argue about that. They just don't have that auto Marvel equals quality. And it's, it's not a fun it's not a fun topic to bring up, but hmm. when you can mine a whole bunch of classic storylines from the 70s and 80s that everybody loves, and then yeah. you speed run into the late 2000s where... You know, you know what? You could say whatever you want about Miss Marvel. Maybe it's your favorite character. Maybe it's not your favorite character. I don't give a shit. But her last series was canceled for low sales, and it was yeah. selling less than ten thousand copies an issue. And that's who you're going to base a two hundred fifty thousand 
250 million dollar movie on uh, they speed ran into all the problems that current comics have with all these characters that people don't really care about yeah and i'd watch brie larson read the phone book but i'm only a, a small percentage of the population i think i would have rather seen the clone saga <laughs> and, and you, you brought up another issue that they're, they've been having is during miss marvel one of the worst scenes that everybody talks about is when the bat was it the antagonist just suddenly crumbles into a skeleton and the see the cgi was so horrible mm. and yeah. that's another thing they've been fighting and that's part of the studio problem where they've been fawning out this work to the to all these different cgi places and then like low taking the lowest bidder first off mm -hmm. and then spreading it around all the lowest bidders and then telling them Oh, you said it'll take two months. You have two weeks. Plus, it's just too many characters. Like, yeah, we fell in love with Shang-Chi in his movie. I know I did. I'm sure you guys love oh, the movie, too. It was yeah, awesome. Yeah. That was the last time we saw him. We haven't seen him yep. since. <laughs> it's yeah. been almost three years. I know the pandemic and other stuff, or but you meet She-Hulk, you don't see her again. You meet Moon Knight, you we don't see them again. Shang -Chi Kate Bishop. Yep, Kate yeah. Bishop. Uh, the quote-unquote young Avengers are all going to be in their 30s by the time we get to young <laughs> <Yeah>. Avengers. It's <laughs> exactly. frustrating where... As in the first phase, and even like the second and third, as they got bigger, but you know, there was where character you saw Captain America in his own movie, you saw him in Avengers, you saw you saw right. him in his sequel, you saw Loki multiple times, you saw Thor multiple times. You got to love these characters, and then they cross over and you get excited. Not I saw a Captain America TV show, and then six years later he might be in an Avengers movie. There's only so much blame you can lay on the pandemic and a writer's strike. It definitely I mean, screwed I mean, up their plans, though, because yeah, America Chavez was supposed to be in No Way Home, and that was supposed to come out uh, before that. It's like a whole thing. They, yeah. It screwed everything up, but at the same time, they get paid money to fix that. And, yeah. Yep. All right. That's it for the news. <sighs> Not a lot to talk about, but we got some great interviews for you. First off, we're going to do Sarah Meyer. She, I, we interviewed her last year at New York Comic Con. She is the artist for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday Adventures, which is a throwback to the 80s cartoon. It's I love the book. It's fun. Uh, she's a great artist. She also has a self-published book out, Monstrous, so you guys should check that out. But that's enough of that. Here's Sarah. Take it away. All right, boys and girls. We're here with Sarah Meyer, one of... If people don't remember, we interviewed you last year That's for Saturday Morning Adventures, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Saturday Morning Adventures. And I have to say, you were one of the best people I interviewed last year. <laughs> because your enthusiasm and your love for what you do just reminded me of why I love comic books. Oh my God, thank you so much. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> uh, no worries. The other thing I wanted to say is, is last year, you were... The colorist on the book. That's right. But we talked earlier, and you said that was really a fluke because you are an artist. That's right. <laughs> yeah. How did that like? How did that come back about? And now you're penciling the book. Oh yeah. Okay. So basically, I got the coloring job on Saturday Morning Adventures numbers one through four last year. After I got the variant cover job mm -hmm. uh, for cover three C. That's the one with the turtles and the news van and, and Vernon Fenwick driving and April and Irma. And that was my very first official Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles piece of art that right. I had done for IDW. And that 
actually, I think, led to the coloring, because after that, they offered me the coloring job. But like I mentioned to you earlier, that really was a fluke, because I was not aware of... I didn't even think it was going to be something that they would ask me to do. Right, right. I just thought, this cover is going to be my first and possibly last Turtles thing. I better just put everything I can into it. (laughs) And I guess they just liked it, and they they had a need for a colorist, so... They asked me, and uh, I said yes very quickly. And before I knew it, like literally August of 2022, I was like already just coloring it and finished the first issue in early September. And then it came out the very next month, so it was really quick. Yeah. Yeah. And New York Comic Con last year even was a whirlwind thing. I just almost last minute quickly applied for a pro badge after the deadline, and they let me in for the Turtles panel, you know, and, and for meeting you as well. <laughs> Everyone, oh, at least everyone today that we've talked to, everyone I've talked to that has worked on the Turtles, yeah, loves working on the Turtles. It's And it feels like a family. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm still a pretty new member of the family, but yeah. I think because we're all such huge fans of it, in many ways we already automatically know whether somebody's been with IDW for five years or five months. If we're working on Turtles, there's a very good chance that we all have that in common, that we love right. working on it and because we're big fans of it. And remind people, how did you f- how did you first get introduced to the Turtles? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, and so pretty mm-hmm. much, like, everything in my earliest formative memories is, like, literally Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Fred Wolf, Murakami Swenson production cartoon on TV in syndication, whether it be like the new episodes or syndication, literally was my entire formative childhood. So I remember watching it on TV all the time, getting some of the VHSs out of the library, of course the Pizza Hut promotions. Oh, yeah. So I was definitely yeah. one of those, not obviously too young to have been there for the Mirage Comics 1984 release, mm-hmm. but definitely a child who was heavily influenced and enamored with those 87 turtles. Yeah. Yeah. And having the turtles wrap with vanilla ice didn't ruin it for you? No, not at all. Because <laughs> keep in mind, back People then, forget about that. <laughs> yeah, but let me tell you, too. Any time that people say, oh, yeah, Secret of the Ooze was less, not as good as the 1990 movie, yeah. I'm like, as an adult, as, as my 37-year-old self now, looking back at it, I'm like, yeah, maybe. The, the cold cuts joke. Yeah, that was like a studio interference. But the thing is, when you're a kid, you don't give a damn about Vanilla Ice not being that cool a guy. Like, it's just cool to you. And the other thing, too, is you don't notice or care about, oh, you can see the stunt guy's face through the the mouth in the first movie. Mm -hmm. And I certainly, as a child, did not think that the third movie, the third live-action movie, (laughs) I did not think that was a flawed movie at all. As a little kid, I thought it was excellent. So, as an adult, I still see the problems, but I'm like, no, it was great. It was enjoyable. (laughs) No, that's true. And I think when people look back on those those things, they forget who the target audience was, right? right? Yeah. And you were the target audience, obviously. (laughs) Yes, yes. So, let's talk a little bit. You have an independent book out, right? Monstrous? Yeah. What's what's the story about? Monstrous is a graphic memoir. It's out from First Second Books, and it is about my childhood in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, growing up as a transracial adoptee, born in South Korea, adopted by white parents, and raised in rural northern Baltimore County, Maryland, which did not have a lot of uh, diversity. But I also want people to know that while there's some run-ins with racism and a lot of xenophobia and homophobia as well, 
the the main uh, core theme of the book is how my love of cartoons, comics, and anime and cosplaying helped me to form my own sense of identity and kind of combat that. Yeah. Uh, and, and with with comic books and like the whole culture here in near Comic Con, all the other Comic Cons, it is a very inclusive culture. Like it, ideally, yes. Well, I, <laughs> Yeah. But it's more and more they are saying it out loud. Definitely. I think, unfortunately, you still run into your share of gatekeepers or, yeah. or yeah, mansplainers occasionally. But, yes, I agree with you that generally it's still it's much more inclusive than it has been. Now, let me explain to you why you're wrong about <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that's, I, I hope that it go, keep, continues on the path that it's going on. Cause and, we, obviously... It's it's uh, self bio, uh, biographical. Yes. Um, but what what pushed you to do it? What inspired you to actually say, let me put this to, to paper and do something with it? Uh, mainly two things. One, it, it is not really a. Uh, it's a very specific experience. I think there's a lot of books out there that might be written by Asian American authors that talk about like cultural and racial identity in America. But there isn't a lot out there about the unusual experience of looking Asian but having a white familial background. Like literally my my ethnicity in a way is German American, you know what I mean? Yeah. I actually did not grow up with the Korean culture and I was not really raised with that. It definitely, I felt that there was a need for those kinds of stories. I know that there is a population out there that are transracial adoptees that I think would benefit from seeing that representation. But the other reason is I also find that I think that everybody, no matter what their background, has struggled at least a little bit with having your external image not match like how you feel on the inside. I think that there's and, and the example I give is in groups of friends in school, you might want to go out for some kind of team. And your friends might joke or think that you're not really up for that because people think they know you. They right, think that right. they know what you're all about. And in a nutshell, that story is mainly saying it's okay to be more than one thing. It's okay and important for you to not be too influenced by other people's attempts at imposing a label onto you. It's about knowing yourself and being true to yourself. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's something that... As, as much as we would hope that people recognize that and innately know it and try to practice it, I think it's still something of a, a message that is a little bit, like, lacking today. So I fight. Cool. All right. So let's get back to Turtles just a little bit. What, what do you have coming out that people should be looking out for? Yes. Okay. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Saturday Morning Adventures, the Halloween special. I'm drawing the, the story A in it, which is a very creepy sequel, and it features Creepy Eddie. And I had an absolute blast drawing that. The colors are by Luis uh, Antonio Delgado, who I've were, admired his work for a long time mm-hmm. on the last run-in and everything. So yeah. it's awesome to have him color my work. And of course, the script is by Eric Burnham, who really just, every time I go to draw something that he writes, I'm always like laughing and smiling the whole time. It's like a great time. So that is out in comic stores right now. Story B is by Dan Schoening, and it's an awesome Shredder and Krang story tale in that issue. So that's out now. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday Morning Adventures number six, Shiny and Chrome, is another issue that I've done the interior art for, and that is out on 1025, so October 25th. Okay. After that, I believe it'll be 
Saturday Morning Adventures number seven, which is about ShredderCon. Lots oh. of shredders. Oh, man. I've done the, uh, the cover A for that, I believe. Okay. And then, or cover B for that, I think. And then the next one after that is number eight, which is about Mr. Og and Breaking the Fourth Wall. And I believe that cover A, which I've drawn for that, is up on Previous World now. Okay, cool. And then after that, there's April special. There's number 12. 13 and 14 that I'm doing for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Saturday morning. You keep them busy. Yes. That's good. Zero complaints there. (laughs) And where can people find you online? Oh, yeah. I'm on Instagram and, to a lesser degree, Twitter, at S. Meyer Comics, S-M-Y-E-R Comics. Mm -hmm. And my website is Meyer.net, M-Y-E-R.net. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. And, of course, the question we always wrap up on. Yeah. How do you measure success? Oh, man. I'm right here with you, <laughs> honestly. And I'm having a, uh, a really excellent second year at New York Comic Con. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I've been, doing, I've been doing comic conventions. Oh, I have a better answer now because I'm reflecting on this. Oh, my God. Yes, okay. yes. Yay. Sorry. <laughs> I just hey, thought about it. Like, we've asked the question to people multiple times, and it always changes. So Yeah. yeah. Okay, so here's how I'm going to put it. And, by the way, the first part of that answer is ringing true. Like, I'm here, yay, like, with you guys. I've been doing comic art, like, comic convention and anime convention artist alleys since literally 2002 or 2003. Right. And I think I mentioned this to you last year. I've been doing it for 20 years. Right, right. With, and not even kidding, a tackle box of, like, markers and, like, just random drawing paper. And I, so I've been at it for a long time. I really love conventions in general as both a fan and as somebody who applies for Artist Alley. Hmm. So it has been, the mark of success for me, honestly, has just been that I'm still doing it. (laughs) You know what I mean? No, it's not a bad uh, way to look at it, yeah. But I will say it is a little bit surreal that now I have people who already know my name or what I've worked on, and Mm -hmm. they come to the table with the comic issues that I've drawn are monstrous in some cases and they want me to sign it and that's been incredible also I should note that right now I'm looking at the Disney cruise ship and when I got offered the job to (laughs) when I got offered the job to draw turtles for Saturday morning adventures which is legitimately my dream come true I was in Disney World so that's insane you're like what's the mark of success and I look out and there's like the Disney cruise ship (laughs) like what is going on (laughs) <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for your time. Thank really you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> After these messages, we'll be right back. All right. Thanks for that, Sarah. John, you enjoyed that interview? Yeah, yeah. It was fun. I didn't have much to say because she was, you asked all the questions. You had interviewed her before, too. Yeah. We've kind of um, become friends. So it was so, easy. We talk online all the time. And that's, that's, it's really nice to have an easy interview because she had yes. a lot to say. Yes. The next one was a great interview. So you guys all know that we reviewed this on the show about two months ago. It's the last run and you're waving it around really quick. Uh, <laughs> yes, the last run in. We got to sit down with Tom Watts, Ben Bishop, and the Escarza. I don't want see, I knew I was gonna mess it up. The Escarza brothers. So they're all the ones who worked on the book. Yes. We know it's Eastman and Laird. They did work on the book a little bit. It was their story, but they're the guys that brought it to life. And we got to sit down with them, and it was a lot of fun, and here we go. All right. <laughs> we are now here with Ben Bishop, Tom Watts, 
and the Escorza brothers. You guys all worked on a book that we did an entire episode on, The Last Ronin. And oh, awesome. You guys have also worked on The Last Ronin too. Yes. All the last Ronin stuff. <laughs> yeah. This is it. This we, is we, the we team. Love, we, like, like, honestly, Louise we all love the book. <laughs> what was it like working with Laird and Eastman? What was the back and forth with creating this? You know what? I Here's a, a funny story. People are always surprised to hear. So I've been working on Turtles now since 2010. I did the first 100 issues of the main book and then also moved over to Last Ronin, some video games. And to this day, I actually have never met Peter in person. Just never, it's just never happened. Wow. I've never been out east. He's never been out west. And so most of my engagement with Peter has been either through IDW editors or Kevin himself. That being said, when we first decided to do The Last Ronin, and that came about as I was ending my run on the main book at IDW, and Kevin reached out to me and said, hey, what do you want to do next after this? And I told him I didn't know. I hadn't really, I wanted to do more. I just wasn't sure what it would be specifically. That's when he pulled out their old outline from his archives, which was the, the, the foundation for The Last Ronin. It was a, the last turtle story that they had planned in 1987, and it would be this future story, one turtle remaining that would finish the job that Master right. Splinter had set out for them to accomplish. And I read it, and I told him, let's do it. Let's do this thing. And But I told him I wanted to make sure Peter One was okay with it, and that if Peter wanted to come in and, and write, I was happy to step back and, and just be a part of it, maybe help out. But I felt like this was their story to tell. And so Kevin reached out to, to Peter, and Peter said, No, you guys go ahead and tell the story. He gave his full blessing, and, and, and with the understanding that some things obviously would have to change. One thing we say in a lot of interviews is Peter predicted the future too well. And so it didn't feel very futuristic anymore because he nailed it. He knew everything that was going to happen. I, he's the soothsayer that amazed me, yeah. especially the technology that he predicted. So we knew we had to futurize it, or make it a little more futuristic than it was. But at, at its core, it's that outline. that It wouldn't exist without the work they put together. And throughout the entire process, I know Kevin was communicating with him from the beginning to the end, final product. And as far as I know, we've had Peter's full blessing. Matter of fact, I just saw he was si- signing some copies. But for me, it was an honor. It's been an honor to work with Kevin all these years. So even if it was indirectly through Kevin, it's an honor to me to follow in Peter's footsteps as well. I'm not doing this without Kevin and Peter at all. And I know that, and that's something that I actually cherish, that that I have had this ability to follow in their footsteps, and this privilege, really, is what it is. So it's been great. And for it to be successful, it's just cherry on top. Totally. I don't have much to add. I've met Peter a handful of times. Like one of the very first signings I did was with Steve Levine, Jim Lawson, Eric Talbot, Peter Laird. It was amazing. And so the turtle community welcomed me early, like before I really had anything to show for it. And then I think that helped get me where I was. But as far as I know, Peter's really into it. I I had the task of drawing some Fugitoid as well as the brothers. And that's a character who's really personal to Pete. Mm And so it was a lot of reverence there, make sure yeah. to do it right, and I hope he, I, he sees this and he likes it. And, and as far as I could tell, he's very happy with it. He's always liking my posts and saying, great job. And you can imagine what that feels like. Actually, uh, along the lines of the art, like one of the things that really struck me in this book is when there's flashbacks, it's definitely a much an older style of the Turtles mm-hmm. and then, then the current future. There's different art styles throughout the whole book. Was that definitely intentional? Okay, I'm not the artist, but I was part of that process. So I I think, let me explain it, and then I want them to explain how they came up with their designs. The art thing, everything was happened for a reason, but at a... 
at a certain point, it was came out of chaos. So it was order from chaos. So originally, the original main artist was going to be Andy Kuhn. So he was signing on to do it. And he had actually... Everything. everything, yeah. There was no plans for there to be any extra artist. It would be Andy. And I believe Luis Antonio Delgado was the colorist at the beginning. I'm not sure, but oh, I... It was I, Brittany Pizzoli. It was Brittany, that's right. Pizzoli. It was Brittany, that's right. I forgot about that. So what happened was... Obviously, there was a, a this thing called a pandemic that happened, and so things yeah, just got yeah, all yeah. crazy. So Andy had drawn 20 pages, and then it just, for personal reasons and, and just societal reasons, he had to step back. And he said, I, I, I'm not going to be able to finish this. And we were thinking, oh, no, this is going to be a big book, and there's a lot of excitement about this. And we went out, we made this big announcement about what we're doing. we, we got to bring in new artists. And so the question at the time was, do we bring in another artist to finish the book or do we start over and you know it's expensive to start over especially when you're that far in and to IDW's credit and, and Nickelodeon's they said go ahead and start over find new artists but we also knew time was of the essence it already right. was and now even more so and so we Kevin and I sat down and I said maybe what we do is we have flashbacks that we can have another artist come and fill in so that way one artist isn't doing all the work and then maybe that'll speed things up Kevin worked with Ben to, to figure out how to do the flashbacks, but we needed the, the main artist to it. And so it was Courtney, Kevin's wife, who remembered the Scorsa brothers from some heavy metal work they had done in the past. And I remember, this is how Kevin presented the brothers to me. He said, okay, there's these two guys in Mexico. They're great artists, look at their art. And I was like, yeah, that art is great. He goes, but even better, they draw just alike, they're twins and they draw just alike and they're really fast. And he goes, if I can get them on this book, we'll have great art, but it'll be fast art too. And maybe this book will get caught up. And I thought, Okay, Kevin right. had the full lead on the art side of things and design, so I was like, hey, if, if you think they want to do this, let's reach out to them. And But he was like uh, kind of underplaying it, and I, I'll say this right now. If you see these guys draw, sometimes they draw not just alike, at the same time, on, on the, the same, same page. page. At the same time, yeah. <laughs> It'll blow your freaking minds. The thing is, I didn't, I, I had no clue who they were at the time. Now they're my family, but at the time I was like, if you can get them in and they can go fast, we've got to get this book done. And so what happened was, it was kind of like, like a blessing in disguise. What we thought was going to be a disaster ended up giving this book this unique look because yeah. it, it, it gave every scenario a personality to the point where there was never a plan for Kevin to do artwork in the book but we needed a page and he goes I'll just draw that page and so we were looking at it one day and I said Kevin do you see what's happening here I said we have the story in the present that the scorses are drawing we have the flashbacks that Ben is drawing but your page is a flashback but it's in the first person narration like somebody's narrating it so it's like directly from their memory they're, as they're narrating it I said we should just do that for the whole book and, and he said at the time because he was doing all the layouts and everything he goes it might kill me he goes but let's do it and so that was how we deliberately from that point on wrote the book that way so that there was pages that made sense for Kevin to draw for the brothers to draw and for Ben and, what, and, and it and what better out. look inside Michelangelo's mind as he's narrating those scenes that Kevin's drawing than the old duo shade classic mm -hmm. Kevin Eastman style. Like, that's how you picture the interior of Michelangelo's brain or yeah. April's brain 100%. is duo shade, black and white, yeah. Eastman and Laird. I saw the title and I said, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> and he started, he goes, he goes, it's a weird name, but it's really cool, trust me. And I, I, I looked at it and I looked at the figures, I go, they do look cool, but I had no clue who they were, you know, at the time. Um, and I was, when the movie came out in 90, I was in Desert Storm, so I, there was not a lot of TV when I was in the military, so I was out of the loop, really. Uh, it wasn't until I had my own kids 
and my son, my old, my son was watching the Fred Wolf stuff on VHF. So that was my first kind of experience. And then he really liked the movie. We had the movie on VHS, and I really liked the original the movie, the, the Henson movie. So that was my gateway into it, where I'm like, okay, I get it. This is fun and cool. But where I really turned the corner and became a fan was my daughter, who's the youngest. She started watching the Four Kids version that was on uh, yeah, TV in yeah. 2003, and I. I loved that show. I thought that was great. And I, and I hadn't even really, at that point, really seen the comics, the Mirage comics. And it wasn't until later, obviously, when I started writing Turtles for IDW, where I really took a deep dive. And it made me appreciate even more of that for a kid show. Because it was it pretty religiously, for a while, followed the Mirage storyline. And, and so that made me love the comics even more. But it was one of those things where I had to come in through it through my, my kids' eyes because I was just older. And, and, again, like I just didn't have access to a lot of media for a long time. I was you know middle of the desert somewhere and you, you don't get tv and so that for me was it was not only exciting because i was able to be a fan of something but also to share it with my kids you know in the, in the way i did so if you read you know I, I always say to people you can really see that I'm, I'm very inspired by that 2003 version and the 2007 cgi movie the, the one kevin monroe i like that movie a lot i thought it was a lot of fun i, I like the aesthetic of it and so for me though that was where i was like okay i'm in now i get it and, and then the, the rest is history as far as my fandom has grown just being part of it, but not just because of the property, but because of the people. This is, I've written for some big brands like Silent Hill and, and other books, but Turtles will always be my favorite fandom because it's, it is family. And so what's happening in all those different iterations carries over to the, the people who, who love it. And, it, and it's a shared experience. So I think that's really, for me, what, what Turtles is, is just it's a shared experience. It always has been. Except for the time at the barracks when I'm like, that's, that's dumb. <laughs> uh, I came to it, as you might imagine. Like I said, I was born in 86, and so it was every single morning getting up as early as I could to get downstairs with my turtle sleeping bag, turtle pillowcase, turtle toys, <laughs> turtle drawing tools, turtle everything, and watch the turtle cartoon. And it was the cartoons, it was the toys, and then much later came to the comics and realized, oh, it's the most successful indie book ever made. And then I was inspired as a kid by the characters and the colors and the stories. And then I was inspired more growing up as a comic book artist myself, making my own characters and comics and stories by the comics and what Kevin and Pete were able to do on their own and how it turned into this giant monster. And so I, I think now, and I'm like, I still do the same thing every day. I get up as early as I can and I get to the studio and I'm drawing Ninja Turtles and playing with the Ninja Turtle toys and drawing the packaging <laughs> for the Ninja Turtle toys. And I'm just like, I've been doing the same thing since I was seven. <laughs> it's funny when I, probably around your age and I remember the cartoon coming out when I was a little bit older mm -hmm. and then my cousin and I were at the arcade and we were playing the original game right. and he said this isn't the Turtles and I'm like what? Because he collected obscure comics and he had the original trade right. so he showed that to me and I'm like wow this is really different so it's this is a serious story yeah. compared to what the cartoon is so the Turtles has been reinterpreted a, a dozen two dozen times mm -hmm. Do you, any of you have a favorite interpretation of the Turtles? I love ours. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I can't have an affinity for the, the, the IDW main book. I don't know. I like everything for different reasons. Even the Fred Wolf thing, because I, and I'll give an example of how that can inspire something. So I agree, I was older, so the Fred Wolf cartoon seemed silly to me. I was obviously, I was too old to maybe beat the target audience. But I remember watching it with my son, and, I, and this carried over into the, to the, main, the book I was writing, was there was an episode about the Hot Rod Teenagers from Dimension X. And it's a goofy issue. 
episode, they fly through in this hot rod car through a portal, and they're saying "Daddy-o," and they're but underneath that, the story was about these kids trying to escape a planet or a dimension that was constantly at war, and that st- struck me like, what would it be like? to be in a place where it's all war and you just want to have fun. So when, when it came time to do some Dimension X stories in our main book, I wanted to bring the neutrinos back. And I didn't want to lose that goofiness because that was part of it. But I wanted to, like you said, reinterpret that. And so my idea was like, they still say daddy and they still got the funky haircuts because they're aliens, they're from another planet, but they're also like John Connor and Sarah Connor, they're part of this resistance against this war. They're, they're warriors, but they're still those fun characters. So I think for me, it's I have a special spot, obviously, for Ronan and, and for the IDW books, but the reality is I just feel like it's just like this big collective whole. Like even like the, the recent, Kevin and I got to sit in early on when they were they were playing Rise. We sat in some of the writers' rooms just to hear what they were doing, and they, they wanted to talk to us about it. And I really liked a lot of those concepts that they were coming up with because they were new, they were different, and I think things need to change. Things need to be new. But at the same time, in that meeting, you felt like they were totally cognizant of what Turtles was and what it's supposed to be. And so I think that's that for me, the easiest answer is I love them all, and there's something beautiful in all of them for me. Yeah, serious answer. I do love our stuff, of course, and it's only getting cooler. But the Henson suits and the movies, that was real. You're just like, I still think they were real. Outside of that, the Ciro Neely show, the Nickelodeon 2012, I think is what it's known as, just perfect. Yeah, Ciro's awesome. Ciro did a great job of pulling everything he loved from this and that and from this and from that, and then just just aggregates together into this, like, perfect show. Yeah. So that's my answer. It's incredible how easy it's to change from the original version we had, the dark version we had, full of blood, full of death. Curiously, when they go into the childish part, they fit perfectly. It seems that they were born there. They can fit anywhere. It looks like that. I've seen so many crossovers, and it looks like they are like like the dessert that we say we don't we're full we don't want to eat anything else but then you see the turtles and you eat it right the turtles are like that they can fit anywhere you have them they can fit something dark something pop something nicer but personally i prefer the, the dark side of the turtles <laughs> Since we had a chance of working with Last Running, we decided this is the version we want, this turtle is the one we want. Even Kevin asked us to have some influence from Frank Miller, it was more than welcome to have it, especially the first pages, two and third pages. The first pages, they work on the two and three first. So it was a test from Kevin to see if they could match something dark like Miller. So if you actually pay attention to the first two pages, you'll see some Frank Miller there on the panels, especially on the first number. In our personal taste and things that we like, we prefer something like more adult, more mature, something like European comics, stuff like that. Draw this kind of turtle is what they wanted. It was a complete pleasure. You have mentioned a lot turtles have been growing with us. The version I preferred when I was a, a, a kid, it was a, the child version, the cartoon. But today, now that I'm old, <laughs> I love this new version, the, the older version we have, the dark version. And the, it's something I have on my memory. It's a grateful memory to have the child version, the cartoon version. But I, I couldn't have a comic like that right now, but I have on my mind that. And this is what I like now, the dark version we have. One last question. All right, so the question that we normally wrap up on, 
is how do you measure success? Uh, you know what? For me personally, as long as I'm working, then some, I must be doing something right because I'm continuing to work. It, it, it's funny, we, we were talking about that earlier and we were saying, we, if somebody says, hey, how does it feel to be famous? And I, my joke was, ask Taylor Swift because I, I don't know. But the, the, the thing is, I, I think success for me is, is I have to tell the story that I love first. It has to be something that means something to me. I, and it, and I, won't, I don't want to put something out that I wouldn't want to read myself, knowing full well that what I want to read isn't always what other people want to read. But if, if I can put together a story by myself or working with Kevin or anybody else I, and, and then find wonderful collaborators like this and present it to the world, a comic book story, and we get this positive response. And even if it's not positive but it's passionate, to me it's success because you did the work, people are paying attention, and to the point where they care enough to talk about it, whether sometimes you don't get the best reviews, sometimes you get great reviews, sometimes it's in between. But for me, it's if my experience carries over to somebody else's experience, then that's what matters. Yeah, who doesn't want to have a bazillion dollars or whatever, but that's, one, it's not going to happen in comics. And two, what does that mean? You just have a lot of money. You, you could, there's a lot of scammers out there, so snake oil make a lot of money. Does it make them successful? So for me, I think it's really just that having this vision and, and having this dream to tell stories and then being able to share those stories with people and have it somehow, some way connect. And that means a lot to me. So it, it means more to me to have somebody come to my table and say, Oh man, that one scene meant a lot to me. And knowing in my heart, it meant a lot to me to write it too. And I, I'm glad somebody found that meeting and it w to the point where they wanted to share that experience with me. So I, I think that would be my success. For me, I think it's like the, the ultimate goal of, of success or whatever. It's, it's not just necessarily money and big house or anything like that, which don't have, but it's just the time. The time I've always wanted since I started making my own comics when I was 18. Just imagine if I just had the day to, to do this exactly like I wanted. And every new job and every new success, a lot for more of that, maybe a more a better working environment, a good studio that's more inspiring or getting to meet people and have different experiences. But really at the end of it, it's it's almost like the audience, I think Rick Rubens says, the audience comes last. It's, I want to just do my best work and, and if I know that's the best I could do and I had the time to do it and it, even better if it was a pleasurable day and not a bad day, and then you just, you get this, this feeling and like when it's done or you've done that, even if it's a page a day and it's just, you get that feeling at the end of each day, like that's the success is if you don't have that, then it's always stress and it's, oh, I'm not even doing a good job. Why am I doing this? There's no reason to do it if it's not the best that you can do. And I feel like more and more as this is going, crazy deadlines aside, like things fall into place where it's like, just let them do their best work. And I think that resonates with fans as well. And then the audience is like right there with you. And it's not necessarily like they come last, but they're not telling you what to make. You're like, you're saying like, this is how I think it should be. This is my artistic voice. No one can tell Tom's story better than Tom. No one can tell Kevin's story better than uh, Kevin. And, and no one can tell the brothers better than theirs. And anytime I can say, yeah, this is exactly like how I wanted it. And that gave me chills while I was drawing it. That's the success. For me, it was a life changer, the project. The turtles have turned everything upside down for me. So for me, it's the most important project we have collaborated as brothers and as an artist. And we were checking about our life completely became a turtle. That's a new verb you should use. 
uh, all our kids parties are now based on turtles <laughs> <laughs> they have the weapons they have the props not original weapons but props <laughs> we are known in the neighborhood as the turtle guys <laughs> turtle so it's it collaborating with Kevin it has been a complete explosion of feelings and happenings that seems to have been impossible to fit inside of my head there are moments when I think I'm still dreaming I cannot actually comprehend the magnitude of what we're doing the impact and the fans and that's part of what I consider the success and obviously all the success that we have had it's part of the work of the team and Kevin obviously mm-hmm. everywhere we go everyone says it's sales number one there is a video game coming we broke this record we break this one we have a hundred variant covers we have five reprints but we have actually measured access when people come to our table and they actually feel the passion from 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 the first person right the kid the work I love your drawings I love the story and when we see that face to face person to person that's when I say Kevin knock it out of the park <laughs> because he actually hit the fans he hit the heart of the fans not just the pockets not just the publicity not the money he actually got the heart that's just something we hear the money and stuff is something they say we don't care about that we see the books, we see the volumes, we see the people, but that's what we actually deal with face-to-face. As Ben said, we actually work our best every time, and we do it without knowing it will be a success or no. But when we see the, the, the lines, when we see the people, when we see these type of conventions, that's when we say, this is a success. Yeah, I follow up on that. I think it's worth mentioning. I've done a lot of signings with Kevin over the years, and there's no underestimating how powerful his presence is but not in in a way that you might imagine his presence is powerful because people love Kevin and he genuinely loves his fans back and it's I never get tired of watching people come through our line all ages all genders all ethnicities all races and turtles mean so much to them and he gives everybody you know that time and it's like that to me is success but that's life success. Yeah, he's had personal success. He's had you know creative success. But I think life success is what we should be all shooting for because we only got one of these, right? And, and make yeah. it what it is. And I, when I watch people come to Kevin, I always feel like I admire that because even after all these years, he's not jaded by it. He still appreciates it. Every single person that talks to him gets his time because he knows he's connected with them and he wants them to know that they've connected right back to him and so I, I think that's probably the best way to describe it and so I, I'm, I feel privileged and honored to be part of the ride and even just to be able to witness it is amazing alright thank you guys very much thank you after these messages we'll be right back John did you want to say anything about our last interview that we're going to include on this episode one of the easiest we get a lot of easy interviews but we're but one of the, I think this is one of the best yeah. interviews it, we yeah. have done in 10 and a half, 11 years of doing this show. Yeah. When I say easy, like it was, we could have talked to that guy for an hour. It's in the description. I know you guys clicked on it for this. This is about a 20 minute interview, but it's a great interview with Max Brooks, son of Mel Brooks, of course, but writer of World War Z, Zombie Survival Guide, 
Sasquatch. He had a book about Sasquatch. That Sasquatch. Was what you talked about. In the I, interview, I can't right? remember the title of it, but it's really good. And <laughs> Minecraft. Yep. He did the the island or the island and the village is the one that's out now. And there's a third one. I there's a third remember. one. I can't remember what the name is. Right? Yeah. I'll but, you. All right. So take it without any further ado. Take it away, Dave and John from yesterday with Max Brooks. Now, All right. Here we go. All right, boys and girls, we are here at New York Comic Con with the one and the only Max Brooks. Of course, World War Z, uh, Zombie Survival Guide, now the Minecraft books. Yep. How are you, sir? I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. It's a, It's been a crazy day. How are you enjoying the con so far? Uh, so far, so good. It's crazy crowded, but I yeah. didn't expect it on a Thursday. No, exactly. That's what we're saying this morning. Like, how many have you been to? I've been doing this for years. I've been doing this since, what, 2003? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I expect Saturday to be crowded, and yeah. maybe, maybe Friday. Mm-hmm. But Thursday, wow, people really, really, really want to get out. Yeah, and they didn't even sell out. Thir- Last I heard, they didn't sell out Thursday, but it was it yesterday. So... Maybe they did, but if this is what it's going to be like today, people jams oh, tomorrow. No, uh, <laughs> Penguin Random House has a booth, and then they've walled off the middle of it like a cube, like a green room. Yeah. So I fully intend to stack up books <laughs> and then have a little sleeping area because so, I ain't going nowhere. It sounds like some of your books, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of your books, Zombies, hmm. what was the inspiration behind that? What, what made you interested in survival stories like that? In the words of the 2,000-year-old man, mostly fear. <laughs> really just basic. Just the fact that I'm, I was a kid. I was like 12 or 13. I saw mm-hmm. my first zombie movie. Scared the crap out of me. And then I would spend years thinking, oh my God, what would I do? What would I do? And then I saw a movie that gave me hope. And it was Night of the Living Dead. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. in Night of the Living Dead, there are rules. You understand what you're dealing with. The fog of war is gone. And I'm like, okay, now that I understand the parameters... Now I can start working on solutions on how to beat them. Plus, they were slow. But in, that way. in a way, slow is actually worse. It is much worse because psychologically, it doesn't trip our wires. Right? Oh, yeah. Look at the pandemic we went through. Yes. All right? Now, I had a friend who was in a New York National Guard unit, and his job, the job of this unit, these kids, they're 18, they're 19, their job was to pick up the bodies because the morgues, the the staffs were overwhelmed. So their job was to get up every day, drive around the five boroughs, go up to these walk-ups, smell what could have been their abuelitas cooking, and pull dead bodies out of the beds. And he said to me, he said one of the reasons that the deniers and the foot-draggers are able to fight this is because the bodies are not being stacked up in the streets. He said if that was the case, he said if we had massive just burn pits. If we had mass graves, remember that mass grave they had that they tried to cover up? If that thing was on CNN every night, people would say, holy shit, we have to do something. And to me, that is the fast zombie, right? The fast zombies are coming. Holy shit, we got to do something. As opposed to saying, come on, what? It's fine. Underestimation is the greatest threat in any crisis. That's invasion of the body snatchers, right? Yeah. Because you're you're like, oh, they're not coming after me. I'll just go here and rest. And the next thing you know, you're gone. It's slow. (laughs) It's the underestimation. It's, we'll give Hitler a little bit of Czechoslovakia. He'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, Right? That worked out. It's not like Hitler was like, listen, if you just give me this, I promise I will only try to take over the freaking world. Mm. He didn't say that. He's like, I just want that. And it's the underestimation. Yeah. Slow zombies. And then now you're mine. Now you've melded it with Minecraft, which I think is brilliant, because 
it's, it is a survival game, right? Well, and people and think of it that way. So, right. <laughs> I'm glad you said. I'm glad. It, I get asked a lot about my work, and they say, your work seems rather eclectic. And on the surface, yeah, it does. A guy who writes about, wait, zombies? Okay, Bigfoot? Yeah, that's still horror. Yeah, but Harlem Hellfighters? A, world, a true story, World War One, Black mm-hmm. Soldiers? And then Minecraft? What the actual F? But then if you go just one level deeper, it's all the same theme. Because it's all about adaptation to crisis. It's all, every book yes. I write is just yeah. things are going a certain way and everybody knows what to do and they're doing their thing. And then suddenly that thing just ends and it's, oh, I have to become a different person or I'm going to die. I've been playing Minecraft for a long time. So how did you, what made you decide to use Minecraft? Besides the fact that it has zombies in it, but yeah. did you play the game? Yeah. Or? Oh my God, yeah. My, yeah my, I, my son started playing it. And I was playing it with them. Yeah. And I realized, yeah. this is more than just a game. This could be the greatest education tool ever. Because if the lessons are there, mm-hmm. they just need to be highlighted. You just need someone to say, oh, no, you just learned about taking life in steps. Punch a tree, block of wood, crafting table, yep. tools to get better materials to make better tools. It, <laughs> what, it's funny that you say that because there are a lot of people... In the younger generation, if you ask them, where does food come from? They say the supermarket. Exactly. Yeah. And the pandemic illustrated that there is something called a chain. Yes. Where things happen. Yeah. And that chain, get, if it gets cut in any way, we're all in a lot of trouble. And people yep. don't really understand that anymore, and they're also going to have to understand it. So that's just one of the many lessons Minecraft has to teach. Oh, yeah, and that's, that's pretty much like uh, some of the, the background premise of every horror movie is like the chain of things breaking down right. as everything goes to hell. Which is, by the way, mm-hmm. one of the reasons I was so scared of zombies, because yeah. every other monster, you just have to get away from it and you're fine. Yeah. But the crazy thing about zombies is they're going to kill more people who may never see them because zombies practice what the military calls second and third order effects. If you look at war, how many soldiers actually die of enemy fire versus who die from disease or infection or accidents? And that's exactly, and then civilians, good lord. And that's a zombie plague because I've always envisioned for every one person who's actually bit by a zombie, how many people are going to die from dehydration, malnutrition, infection, disease? You take away this first world healthcare net. Yep. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Do you, I'm sure you've been asked this before, do you think you could survive a zombie apocalypse? At this point, I don't have a choice because I'm a parent. (laughs) So I have to. Now, my son is 18, and maybe in a few years when he's ready to launch, I can let go. It's tough. But but the truth is, you never know in a crisis how you're going to respond. You Mm -hmm. can train yourself for it, you can do it, but you just never know. I grew up, I was very lucky to grow up with, as a Gen Xer, with World War II parents. Yeah. You would see these groups of my parents' friends who, you know, and then I this and and you'd think, oh, Jesus, Mort Goldman. But then you learn, oh, wait, Mort Goldman was a Marine. Yes. On Guadalcanal. Hmm. Or these other people who are now complaining about their soup being cold. Wait, you were on an an escort carrier that was torpedoed in the North Atlantic? (laughs) Wow. So the truth is, you never actually know who you're going to be because these guys and girls made it out. I, I had an uncle who served in Korea, and he was in a helicopter that shot, got shot oh, down, Jesus. went down over, on, over enemy lines. The pilot was killed, but they had a, a diplomat with them. Oh, my God. He got them out. They had to travel at night. All, 
thought the yeah. whole thing. You would have never known. He passed away a few years ago. You would have never known that about him. Oh. Never know. Yeah, and because they were so unassuming. Because that's what they had to do at right. the time. To, to, <clears throat> they had to do it. They didn't have a choice. Yeah. So. When, a, when a generation is is called to action, they discover, in the words of my dad, there's there's more to you than there is to you. Yeah. 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 We're talking to you because. Aside from all the other stuff you've done, World War Z and all that, you've got the new books coming out with the Minecraft pre premise. Yeah. What is the premise of the setting in Minecraft? It's the third of the trilogy. And like we've been talking about, Minecraft to me was all about the life lessons it can impart. All right. Minecraft book one, mm -hmm. our character, I call him Jack Black just because <laughs> he read the audiobook, <laughs> nice. um, spawns in the world. Spawns in the world in the ocean, swims to an island, has to survive on that island like Robinson Crusoe. And the life lessons there are how to live with yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how, how to be patient, yeah. how to plan. Don't beat up on yourself. Have a plan. Go through it in steps. Don't you be know. out at night. Yeah. <laughs> Recover from failure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Recovering from failure. Massive lesson. And then finally, the last lesson is once he's established the island as a comfort zone, he realizes growth can't come from a comfort zone. Got to leave. So book two, he gets to a continent and meets another castaway. Oh, okay. okay. Book two is all about friendship. Because once you've learned how to live with yourself, you've got to learn right. to live with somebody else. Mm. So you have all this planned out. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I plan it all out. So, it's all, so book two is all about communication mm -hmm. and compromise and how much do you give without giving up all of yourself and how do you work together as a team. And then book three is the final logical natural step, which is they come to a village. How do you live as yes. a citizen in a community? And it's all those hardcore civics lessons told very simply through the lens of the Minecraft universe. Cool. That, I think we need more books like that. <laughs> when I saw The Village, I'm like, oh my god, these are civics lessons right here. Because it, yeah. there's a lesson about law and order, why we have laws, mm -hmm. why are they enforced. There's lessons about economics, like why do we have money? Like mm -hmm. how many people actually sit down and think about like, why do we have currency instead of just right. barter? Exactly. What is the point of that? And also, why can it be the root of all evil? And you're like, maybe it's not. Maybe it's the lure of the evil. Maybe it is the dark side because money is power and power can corrupt. And then war, because war comes to the village. Yeah. And I wrote this before Ukraine. I wrote it before, obviously, oh, wow. with Israel. Yeah. But I have lived long enough to know that wars happen. Yes. And sometimes you do not ask for them and they come to you, how do you survive when war comes to you? So that's the hmm. third book, Minecraft The Village. Mm -hmm. You just, you said trilogy, right? So is that the last one? We done, we're done. What do you have next? Oh God, now I've got a, I've got a short story that I just sold um, that should be coming out soon. We'll talk about that, that's pretty intense. Okay. And then I've got another book that I'm working on and that's, this is all original stuff. Minecraft is the last thing for the moment where I'm working in somebody else's house yeah um something i wanted to ask you and you might not want to answer it yeah <laughs> world war z was turned into yeah. a movie what did you think of the movie because it's very different than the book i think i owe brad pitt a big thank you okay <laughs> that's true so you did get a check it's not about the check it's about people reading my book yeah oh yeah true that would be because this is the story yeah. i always tell because it was a, it was a story that changed my life and and i can never look back and when the movie was about to come out and I saw the trailer. Woof. Yeah, the book was way more involved. But. Uh, the, 
I have, first of all, let's just take a step back and say I married the greatest woman ever. She's my best friend, <laughs> she, and she said to me, she saw how I was reacting, and she's like, you need to call our friend Frank Darabont. Okay. Who created The Walking Dead. <laughs> Are we very clear about this? Now, I'm going to talk to you now, okay? These guys can listen. Okay. <laughs> All right, boys and girls and everything in between, there was a, a comic book called The Walking Dead, and it was good, but it was just people like us who read it, right? Most of America, they never heard of The Walking Dead, okay? So a man named Frank Darabont, he took that comic book and went to a place called AMC, and he said, I want to turn this into a TV series, and they were like, are you crazy? a zombie TV show that's ridiculous <laughs> we do shows called Mad Men with good looking people in beautiful suits that's what we do and he's like no trust me on this I made the Shawshank Redemption I know what I'm doing okay yeah. I've, got a, I've got a crew that knows what they're doing I can come in on time on, on budget I can make this an affordable really great zombie TV show the first of its kind and they said we'll give you like a few episodes for season one, all right? We don't trust you. And he did it, and it was amazing. And they said, thank you, you're fired. Oh, God. And they let him go to Comic-Con to sell season two. Oh, man. And then he went back to the set, and then they fired him right there. And nobody, and I'm talking everybody involved in Walking Dead, nobody backed him up. My wife says to me, call Frank. He knows, he might know how you feel. Yeah. yeah. So I emailed Frank and I said, I don't know how I feel. I said, oh my God, the movie and Brad Pitt and hair. And, <laughs> and I said, I'm worried that they ruined my book. And Frank wrote back and he said, They didn't ruin it. What are you talking about? They didn't ruin it. Did, did they take the book off the shelf and rewrite it? No. I was like, No. Well, then they didn't ruin your book. He said, Trust me, as a guy who's written many screenplays that directors have fiddled with yeah. and put on the screen, and who everybody thinks that's what I wrote, he goes, You have the ultimate prize, you have your side of the story. Yeah. Everybody knows what you intended. So what are you complaining about? And then, God bless him. God, I love Frank. He didn't have to do this. He took my email and he passed it along to a friend of his who wrote back to me and said, please tell your friend, Mr. Brooks, I like his book, but most, more important, all authors sign movie deals, not expecting there to be some sort of loyal adaptation of the movie. Right we sign it so the movie can bring attention to the book. Mm. People yeah. can read our books. This is true. That's what we do. That's our job. And if a movie is going to go out into the world and bring eyes to your book, what are you complaining about? And that was Stephen King. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So how many people have read my book who would never have heard yeah. of it if not the biggest movie star in the world had made a movie and, thank God, kept the title? Yeah. yeah. So at least there's the association. If I have a problem... That's my problem, and I need to grow up. <laughs> there, That's a great answer. There, there was somebody who did a review of The Last Airbender, oh, yeah. and they compared the TV series, the original yeah. TV series, which is probably one of the best things ever put to film, and then they compared it with M. Night Shyamalan's version. Oh. And the end, and this goes to what you were saying, the end, what he said at the end, I forget the reviewer's name. I wish I'll have to remember remember it, put it up on here. But the, what they said at the end is, it doesn't matter that the film was as bad as it was, because it doesn't take away from the fact that the original series exists. It's there. Yeah. It's there. I haven't seen either one. 
Mm. But I can tell you, as long as I don't go back and just rewrite the original, as long yeah. as the original's there, then you're done. Yeah. Have you ever had... <laughs> I'm just curious, because of who your father is, have you ever had a desire to write comedy? I used to write comedy. Oh, okay. My first big boy job was writing for Saturday Night Live. Oh, man. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so I got the job, and two weeks later, 9-11 happened. Oh, God. God. Oh, oh my. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was there. I was there. Yeah. And then two weeks or three weeks or something after that, we had anthrax in the building. Yeah, huh? I do remember uh, that. Yeah, too. that was quite a time. It was quite an interesting time. <laughs> so I so how was the comedy? <laughs> Yeah. Now it makes a little more sense. Zombie yeah. survival. Well, yeah. well, but this is the thing. Zombie survival guide, being Mel Brooks' son, almost ruined my career. Yes. Almost completely ruined it. Because when the book came out, my agent at the time, <clears throat> publicist and publisher, all tried to position it as Mel Brooks Jr. writes Younger Frankenstein. Yeah. And we all know that's not what the book was. And I begged mm -hmm. them. I said, don't do that. First of all, that's not what the book is. Mm -hmm. It's a legitimate nerd book written by a legitimate nerd about how to fight zombies. Right. And if you put it up there as Mel Brooks Jr. in a comedy book, everyone's going to hate it. First of all, you're going to piss off mainstream comedy people. are going to be like, this is not funny. And second of all, my tribe, horror nerds, who right. have yet to meet me, yeah. and don't yes. know me, are going to think that I'm a Hollywood brat taking a giant dump on what they love. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. That's exactly what yeah. happened. I got horrible reviews from both sides. And then my wife, amazing woman. Most wonderful woman in the world. Michelle yeah. Collis Brooks. She <laughs> said, you need to scrap their marketing plan. You need to market it yourself. Yeah. So I went on my knees to a guy named Tony Tapone at Fangoria. And I said, just give me one interview. Yeah. Just let me tell my side of the story. And I did. And we talked. And I talked about all the horror films I grew up on. And, mm -hmm. and he was like, huh, would you like to have a shot on Fangoria Radio? So I went on. And Debbie Rashawn and Dee Snyder. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> and because of my nerdness, I can yeah. name everything obscure Dee Snyder has done. Yeah. I can talk about Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yep. Yeah. I got to tell my side of the story, and I, had, and I got myself a personal appearance agent, this guy Mike D'Andrea, who's still my agent. And he said, we're going we're gonna to do some zombie self-defense lectures around the country. <laughs> and they're going to be straight up. Yes. And if people don't know zombies are fake and they walk in, they're going to think this is no different than an earthquake survival lecture. And we did. And we cool. went all around the country. And bit by bit, I managed to claw out a little bit of a legitimate reputation. Okay. So then the obvious question is, did anyone ever suggest, because Stephen King's son used a pen name. Did you ever yes. think of using a pen name? At first. I did. I did. When I was in my 20s, like early 20s, just, okay. just out of school, and my whole thing was, I would make my own name, and I want to make be seen, and you know, in your 20s, you're insecure. I'm going to make my own. I tried. I talked to some people, and we had some family friends who were like, don't, just don't. Don't worry about it. Because first of all, my dad was like, we can't do that. That's your family name. I'm like, your name is Kaminsky. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, <laughs> you changed it. <laughs> hey, I guess I did. <laughs> that was a different time. Yeah, it was different. We all had to be... Cause it, I mean, now, what if you had changed it back to Kaminsky? I could have done yeah. that. Mm. I really could have done that. But for everybody talked me out of it. And I'm glad they did. Because now, yeah. now I'm proud of the name. And I've always been proud of who my parents were. Yeah. Mm. So I'm glad I didn't do something stupid and young. What... You mentioned it. What is your favorite horror movie? 
Oh, there's plenty. Oh, God. If you've read Devolution, the Sasquatch book, that came out of the fear of the movie Snow Beast. Oh, man, that's an old... It was like Jaws goes to Aspen. Oh, that movie scared the shit out of me. And just like Jaws, they had it from the monster's point of view. Now, remember... I saw these movies when I was little, when they used to put horror films on Sunday afternoon Mm because they were cheap and there was nothing to watch. Yep. And I grew up in a house that was post-war where plate glass was a new thing. So remember in those 1950s homes? Yes. Every home was made of plate glass because they could. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting there and it's dark and the snow beast is attacking and I'm looking outside the plate glass window as the tree's brushing against the glass. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) And to this day, sometimes I think to myself, because I love all movies, but I still think, all right, Jeremiah Johnson had a 50 caliber Hawken. It's one shot, but it's 50 caliber. Yep. That would stop a snow beast. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would do that. So we normally wrap the podcast up by saying, don't let your cape caught in the door, which kind of started off as a joke, but it's morphed to mean, don't let your shortcomings keep you from achieving a goal. So what's something you've overcome in your life Are to you achieve kidding? a goal? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't even talked about my dyslexia. I am massively dyslexic, mm-hmm. horribly. And they didn't know anything about it no, yeah. when I was a kid yeah. growing up oh, in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. Nothing. They thought it was... And my mother, God bless her, oh, God. You only get one mom, and I got a good one. And somehow she learned about dyslexia, and because there were no accommodations. Yeah. So she had to build accommodations for me from the ground up. And then every year she'd have to go to the school and fight whoever the teacher was yeah. to prove that I wasn't being lazy. And being a child of celebrities, there was the prejudice that he must be acting out in class because he's a Hollywood brat and he thinks right. he can get away with it. Yeah, a lot of people exactly. don't get that part. That yeah. No, that's a big thing. So there was that against me and the ignorance of dyslexia. So my mother, she had me tested. She had the test results. She would show the teachers. Mm-hmm. She would have to fight and say, this kid is working harder than the other kids, but he needs to work smart. One of the accommodations was teaching me to type because she said, if you want to be a writer, you got to do it. She forced me to, I just yeah. met my old typing teacher. Oh, I was like, no. She's like, you don't you remember me. I took a typing course. I'm like, are you kidding? I can feed my family because of you. Because <laughs> back in the day, they were like, his penmanship is very poor. My mom's like, fuck, you're going to be Bartleby the Scribner? This isn't the 19th century. So she did that. Audiobooks. This is why all my audiobooks, I don't like to brag, but I will freaking brag about my audiobooks any day. Yeah. Because when I was a kid, my mother took my books that I had to read for school mm-hmm. to the Braille Institute and had them read onto audio cassette so I could listen right. and I could get through high school. Mm-hmm. Audiobooks are hugely, those are a huge one. Another one was timed tests. This is important. Anyone mm-hmm. who's ever had a learning disability, anyone who's hearing this will understand what I'm talking about. It's not the learning disability that's the problem. It's the anxiety that comes with it. Yeah. The learning disability is 30%. But another 30% is the anxiety, and another 30 to 40 is the self-esteem. So that yeah. is massive. So my mother made sure that all my tests were untimed, if she could, in school, to at mm-hmm. least lower the temperature so when I sat down to take a test, my brain could at least try to work correctly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was a lot to overcome, and had I not had the mom, you, we obviously would not be talking. Right, yeah. that is true. Yeah. I lived through the same times because I had ADD. Oh, and of course. it's, they think, they, same thing. Oh, he's just being lazy. He won't sit and concentrate. Control yourself. Yeah. Sit down. Sit still. Yeah. You know? Sit still. 
If you can't sit still, you go out. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there was, this is massive, and they don't. And sometimes you get great teachers. I don't care how old we are. We all remember our good teachers, and we all yeah. remember the bad ones. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, you never get past that. Yeah. So, question that we normally wrap up on. Yeah. How do you measure success? That's a good question. All I can tell you is that I'm, I have an 18-year-old boy, mm-hmm. and he is going to leave the house in a, at the end of the school year right. and go out in the world. And I might still be there to parent him, but the day-to-day parenting, I would say, is, I don't know if it was successful, but it certainly was the most important time of my life. And I am watching the most important time of my life end right before my eyes. Yeah. Now, as a parent of a 29-year-old who has three daughters of her own, it doesn't end, it changes. Mm-hmm. I'll still be there, Yes. but that day-to-day, yes. every yeah, day, exactly. you're in it, you have all the authority and all the power and all the responsibility. Yes. That's going to go away real fast. It does, yeah. And it's funny. I didn't expect it to hit me this way. My mother used to say that to other people around me when they'd have babies. She would say, this is the best time of your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get it. Yep. And I'm watching TV the other day. I'm watching Star Trek Voyager. Hmm. I'm just going to, all right, I can't believe I'm going to reveal this. <laughs> Do you remember? I don't know if you watched Voyager at all. Oh, yeah. Okay. When the doctor is beamed back to help Zimmerman, his creator. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And at the very end, they take this picture of father and son. I, I just started crying. I just burst out into tears. And to this day, I still have that picture right here in my, on my phone. I, t- I took a screenshot of it because this is about to be my life. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and and it's, it's also hard to let them go because you're like, yeah. now, you got, now, you're, now you're in a whole new yeah. you, level of All worry. you can do is trust you did a good job. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is, is now I'm in that, when you're in it, you're in it. And yeah. there's no time to second guess. You've right. got, especially, you've just got things happening and you've got to make decisions. And now I'm in that, po- that position where I'm like, did I make the right choices? Did I do more harm than I did good? You don't, you don't know. You just don't know. I was thinking the other day, I'm walking the dog. I had another choked up moment. I'm walking the dog. And just as my son is pulling out to drive to school, and I thought, you started out in a tiny little baby seat in the middle, right? Mm -hmm. And then you went to the back baby seat looking behind you, and then you went to the baby seat looking front, and then you went to a child seat looking in front, and then you went to sitting next to me in the car, and then I taught you how to drive, and we switched, so you'd be sitting there, and I'd be holding on for dear life <laughs> with the window open to get some fresh air so I didn't throw up. With the ocean handle. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. the ocean handle. I'm holding on the ocean handle for dear life. And I went from that to now you're driving away, yep. and it's the perfect metaphor because if you do your job right as a parent, your reward is abandonment. True. <laughs> Very true. That's what yeah. you do. If you've done it, if you've raised a new life and taught the little bird to fly, then they should fly away. Yep. And that's your reward. Thanks, life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then we'll just end with where can people follow you online? Yeah. You can follow me on, I guess it's X now. Yes. Oh, God. Before he names it something else, middle finger. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's Max Brooks author, and then there's always my website, Max Brooks. And then there's the various 
Facebook pages. But yeah, wherever there's social media, there's usually a version of me with a book next to it. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you very much. All right. I told you that was a great interview. So it was. All right. I think that about wraps this episode up. You guys want to add anything? Are you excited for tomorrow, Joey? Yeah. This year is what it is. We've talked about it on our show. It's been a crazy few months for all of us on the podcast and so wizard, but I'm here. For one day, I got my friend Stu from SWO, Stu World Order Podcast, coming to help me out. We're going to get as much content as we can. And then there's some cosplayers I want to meet and one comic I want to get signed. So that's my plan for tomorrow. Yep, and it's Friday right now. So tomorrow's Saturday. It's going to be insane. Yeah, the attendance has been yes. crazy. So. Obviously, we're not live. This was pre-recorded. And we're going to probably have more interviews. There's going to be more content coming out from this show going forward we just wanted to make sure we got something out on sunday hashtag no weeks off <laughs> nope <laughs> some weeks off some weeks off occasional weeks off yeah. so as always thanks for watching and don't let you get caught in the door have a good week <laughs>